0: The name of Jesus, there's power in the name and in the person of Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about that power today as we look at Galatians chapter 2 together. If you want to go ahead and turn there with me, Galatians chapter 2. Last week we sprinted through everything that we've covered so far in Paul's letter to the Galatians, which was chapter 1 verse 1 all the way through chapter 2 and verse 14. And we left off with Paul in this confrontation with Peter. So Paul is recounting a situation that took place between him and Peter at Antioch and he's letting the Galatians know about this particular encounter. And what had happened is Peter had visited them at Antioch. Paul was one of the elders there at the church in Antioch. And when Peter first came to visit, uh, he was eating and fellowshipping with the Gentile, those non-Jewish followers of Jesus. But something changed when the Jewish believers showed up from Jerusalem. And so we left off at that particular point. Paul said Peter's actions were out of step with the gospel. Notice what it says in chapter 2, verse 14. Uh, Paul, Paul, recounting again, he says, if you, he's speaking to Peter, if you, a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. So it says, Peter, you came here, you began to eat what the Gentiles were eating, You began to dine with the Gentiles. You fellowship with the Gentiles. You're a Jew, yet you became a Gentile in those cultural customs. So if that's what's going on, and then he flips it around and he says, so how can you turn around and force the Gentiles then to live like Jews? Peter was being a hypocrite. Peter was distancing himself now out of fear of what the Jewish believers from Jerusalem would say. In other words, Peter, you cannot require more of them than you require of yourself. With the understanding of this, that Peter required this of himself, faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Yet he seemed to be in that moment demanding more of these Gentile believers all of the sudden out of fear of that circumcision party. From here we move into what we can only assume is a continuation of that conversation that Paul was having with Peter. Um, A a conversation that he wants the Galatians to hear and understand. A conversation that evidently, because we have it recorded for us in Scripture, that the Holy Spirit of God wants us today to hear and to understand. So would you follow along as I read Galatians chapter 2? I'm gonna start in verse 15. We're gonna read down through the end of the chapter. Uh, We're only going to cover a couple of these verses today. We'll cover the rest, Lord willing, next week. But here is what it says. We ourselves, again, Paul speaking to Peter, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. He's distinguishing them. We get this, Peter. Yet, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. God forbid then Christ died for no purpose. Father, we now ask your gracious, gracious blessing as we dig into these meaty, meaty verses. Help us to to understand, but far greater than that, God, help us to be overwhelmed. Help us to leave here today more, more deeply, in awe and in love with you and the salvation that you have so graciously and mercifully provided for us. Spirit of God, we are praying that you would work now. And we are praying, as we just sang, in the name above every name, in the name of Jesus, amen. Up to this point in the letter, Paul has been arguing that his gospel is not fabricated. It's not something that he came up with from his imagination, nor was it a gospel that he simply learned from the other apostles. It was a gospel that Jesus gave specifically to him and commissioned him to share with others on the Damascus road. In Acts chapter 9, Paul says, this is the gospel that was delivered to me. Remember that false teachers have come into the Galatian church. They were attempting to discredit Paul. They were attempting to discredit his message. They figure if they can get Paul discredited, then his message will be discredited. Or if they can discredit his message, then Paul will be discredited. And so they're going against him and they're preaching another gospel, a gospel that is based on works of the law. A gospel that says in order to be saved, From the wrath of God, you must trust Jesus and be circumcised and follow dietary restrictions and keep the Mosaic law, but that is no gospel. That is not good news because we can never be good enough. The gospel is Jesus plus nothing. When I was 19, I took a job working for a drilling company. And I grew up working in the oil fields, but not around uh, drilling rigs. And so I had zero, zero experience. And on my first day on the job, I, I showed up at the shop, and, and my new boss that I'm really just meeting, uh, he says, hey, we've, we've got a guy that got hurt on one of the crews, and so we need you to go and fill in. And so we jumped in the truck, and two hours of drive with this new boss and uh, we get there, and he introduces me to the driller. His name was Doyle, and the, the first hand, his name was Jamie, and, and, and there, there I stood. He gave me a hard hat, and then they started asking me questions, and they started asking me to do things, and they said, hey, can you grab the Y-wrench over there and bring it over here? Um, can, 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 you go, can you go check the fuel level on compressor one? And I, I stood there dumbfounded, and, and I'd never heard of these things. I didn't know what was going on. I was clueless. I had no idea even how to connect one piece of drill pipe to the other. I mean, I knew you, you screwed them together like any pipe, but I didn't know how to get one up and one over and drop the next one. It was loud. It was dirty. It was dangerous. And uh, Doyle was not happy with me. <laughs> uh, he was pretty angry with me. He was pretty angry with the boss man who just dropped me off knowing nothing about these particular things. By by the way, a Y wrench is like a a two-inch thick piece of of metal that's cut in the shape of a Y. Uh, So it's not too hard to figure out exactly what that does. If anybody ever asks you for a Y wrench, uh, you know what that is, and it helps hold the pipe up. But have you ever been there before, though, in in that kind of a circumstance? Maybe you were in a room full of doctors and nurses, and they're throwing out all the medical lingo, you know, Latin phrases and stuff like that, and, and you have no idea what they're talking about. Or if you've ever been around like a group of, of police officers and like Barney Fife, they're throwing out like 1014s and 531s and, and you just, you, you don't know what's going on. You don't know what they're saying or, or sports people and you're not a sports person and they're talking about, about jump shots and layups and, and you have no clue. One of my favorite that I experience often here is military people. Uh, we've got a lot of former military people, and I get in conversation sometimes, and, and I, just, I just stand there with a blank look on my face because you're throwing terminology and phrases and, and acronyms around, and I have no idea. As a matter of fact, George Fuller texted me this week. We, we need to pray for the Fuller family. They're, they're trying to transition. George is trying to transition from reserve into full-time army, and there's hiccups all along the way, as many of you are aware. And he texted me something this week and said, well, here's where we're at. I've got this thing, and then blah, blah, blah. And it was just an acronym. And I, I, I don't know what that means. And so I try to look it up on Google. Google isn't helpful. So finally, I'm like, all right, you're going to have to elaborate a little bit more because I don't know what's going on here. We, we all find ourselves in those kinds of circumstances where we just don't know the language. I don't know if you've ever realized this before, but sometimes our language inside the church can be confusing. To, to non-believers and sometimes to new believers and sometimes to believers. Sometimes we use words and phrases that are, are familiar to us, but they're just not familiar to others who, who aren't as versed in the Bible and biblical terminology and church terminology. And, and we're honestly moving into a, a time in our culture uh, where many of the words we use fall on deaf ears because much of our American culture now is unchurched. They haven't spent much time in a church to understand some of the words that we use. And in some cases, we can change our language. We can say things better or with more clarity. But there are some biblical words and phrases that we can't modify. They're they're biblical phrases that we have to learn ourselves and biblical phrases that we have to teach other people. Let me give you an example of what would be a word that we use oftentimes, like the word saved, We use the word saved, and and most, if not all, in this room today have a pretty good idea what I mean when I use that that word. But but for a non-believer, or maybe even for a new believer, the question may be, what what do you mean by that? Saved? Saved from, from what? Saved is one of many metaphors that we find throughout the Bible that help us understand what Jesus has done for us, to us, in us. The idea of being saved helps us understand that we were in danger, and we were in need of somebody to step in and rescue us, save us, deliver us, and so we use that term to describe it. Reconciliation. Reconciliation means that a, a strained or broken relationship has been mended. Adoption means that those who were not a part of the family of God have now been accepted into God's family. Redemption means that that we have been purchased back. We're no longer slaves to the darkness and to sin, but rather we are now slaves to Jesus, to the Christ. Regeneration means that though we were dead, we have been made alive through Jesus Christ. And all of these words and metaphors, they are important, they're beautiful, they're glorious. These are the words that we have to learn. These are the words that we want to teach. They're not words that we change. But none may be more important than the word that we consider today. Justification. Justification, to be justified. You you saw this word in our text today where Paul says you can't be justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Justification is a word that we need to know. Justification is a word that we need to study. Justification is a word that we need to cherish. Justification is a word that we need to share with others. This morning I have have two points that we find in these two verses, both of which are repeated twice in what's called a chiastic structure. And I'm going to ask Nathan, if he doesn't mind, to throw these slides up. I want you to see just the structure of these verses. And so I'll let you look at this for a moment, but the A's match, the B's match, C stands alone, but you see that it's bookended with this idea that we are not justified by the works of the law. If you want to go to the next slide, Nathan, I'll, I'll show you that. We are not justified by the works of the law, and what does he close with? We are not justified by the works of the law. If you want to go to the next slide, Nathan, what are we justified? Faith in Christ, faith in Christ. And If you go to the next one, so we also have believed. Paul personalized it. We have believed. We have put our faith, the the exact same word. Paul uses these all throughout the New Testament. And, And the point is, in these designs of these particular phrases, the emphasis lies in the center. The emphasis doesn't lie on the fact that we're not justified by the works of the law, but it lies in the fact that we are justified, and particularly in this case, I love these structural things, we are justified by our personal faith in Jesus Christ. These are beautiful things when we find them in God's word. The message of the circumcision party and the false teachers in Galatia was this. You can be justified by keeping the law. You can be justified as long as you're circumcised. You can be justified as long as you keep the Sabbath. You can be justified as long as you don't eat unclean foods, hang around with unclean people. You can be justified as long as you keep the Mosaic law. This was the message of the false teachers, and I realize that I'm getting ahead of myself because some of you are asking the question, Pastor, what what about justification? What what, what do we mean by the term justification? Justification. One of the attributes of God that we find revealed to us in Scripture is this. He's just. We see it all through the Scriptures that God is a just God. Another term that describes the same thing, a a synonym is righteous. God is righteous. And by that, we mean that he is right in everything that he does. He is right. In answering Job's questioning about whether God had been right in his dealings with Job. You remember Job? Job began to struggle. Is is this from God? Is this from a righteous and a just God that he's put me through these things? Here's how God responded to Job. He says this, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? Will you even put me in the wrong, Job? Will you condemn me that you may be justified, Job? I love what Grudem, a theologian, writes about this. He says, God answers not in terms of an explanation that would allow Job to understand why God's actions are right. God doesn't give Job that explanation, but rather he answers him in terms of a statement that is about his own power and his own majesty. God does not need Here's here's what Grudem says. God does not need to explain the rightness of his actions to Job. God is the creator, Job is the creature. And so, if God chooses, many of you know I've had some chronic back pain, if God chooses that that never goes away, he's right. He's right. If God chooses that your, your scumbag neighbor wins the lottery and you don't, he's still right because he's right in everything he does. To be just is to be right. To be just is to be perfect. To be just is to be holy. He's holy. He's distinct from us. Our problem, humanity's problem, is we are not right. We are not just. We are not holy. And I think think we all get this. We, We understand this particular point. There's something wrong with us. We have a tendency and a bent to sin and to do what's wrong and to move against God in his rightness. Therefore, the most important question we all face in life is how can sinful man or woman come into a right relationship with an infinitely holy and just God. Shortly before the Reformation from the Catholic Church in the 16th century, there was a monk named Martin Luther who was being crushed by that very question. How can sinful me be right with a holy God? And the reality is Luther at this point in his life was angry with God. Even even one time exclaiming, love God, I hate him. Luther believed God to be cruel, uncaring, damning, imperfect, unholy beings to hell because of their inability to be just. An inability to be righteous. Righteous an inability to be holy. As a child, I would often hear sermons about, about hell. thought of a good pun here. It was a hot topic at our, at our church. And it would be talked about the torments that awaited those whose faith was not genuine. And that's a that's a topic we need to discuss. That's a topic we see certainly throughout the gospels in Jesus' own teaching. But I would so often go home and and I would would lie awake in my bed at night. And I would say things like, God, if my last prayer wasn't good enough, please make this one good enough. Because I was so scared of the punishment, I was so scared of of dying in my sleep and waking up in hell, facing all the doom. I must have prayed the salvation prayer a couple of hundred times as a kid. Most of those times it was not a prayer out of faith in a loving God who had rescued me, but out of fear in a vengeful God who was out to get me. And I think that, that struggle that I went through as a kid is why I relate so much to a guy like Luther. About Luther, Jerry Bridges writes this. He says, Luther at first thought the righteousness of God that we read of in the scripture was the righteousness that God required of us in perfectly fulfilling the law. And because he realized more and more he could not possibly measure up to that impossible demand Luther became increasingly angry with God. How can you demand these things of me? And that was me. Even as a kid, I was was frustrated with God. I was angry in those circumstances. That was some of you too. It may be some of you who are sitting here today. It certainly is the case for many of our neighbors, many family, many friends. And here's the point that we have to all come to understand. We're not righteous. We're not holy. We're sinful. We're rebellious in our actions and even in our motives. And try as we may to keep the holy law of God, we will fail time and time again. And if you want a quick test to that, just read through the Ten Commandments We'll see if you have completed those. Or you can just narrow it down to the two love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and love your neighbor. And even the times when we succeed, if we're really honest with ourselves, the times that we we did it right, it's born out of our own selfish purposes. (laughs) It's born out of a spirit of Phariseeism like like Paul used to do. It's to be seen of men. It's to be applauded. it's, It's for our own glory. And so if we're to be just and if we're to be right and we're to be holy, that justice, that righteousness that is required of us, it will not come from us. It must come to us. This brings us back to the word of the day, justification. Listen as J.I. Packer defines this, it's in your bulletin so you'll have this with you, but to justify in the Bible means to declare, to declare of man on trial that he is not liable to any penalty but is entitled to all the privileges that are due to those who have kept the law. In recent years, groups like the Innocence Project have worked using things like DNA testing to overturn many wrongful sentences. I I read recently of a 48-year-old man named Theophias Wilson who served 28 years for a pair of murders that, that he didn't commit in his teen years. Man, I can't imagine. I can't imagine finding myself in that particular situation. But earlier this year, Uh, Judge Tracy Brandeis Romanen in Philadelphia, in her Philadelphia courtroom, here's the words that she spoke Theophias Wilson, you are free to go. Free to go. She could have said it this way Theophias Wilson, in these matters, I declare you to be justified. I declare you to be right. That scene describes a human courtroom that is dealing with the matter of murder. And to that decision regarding the innocence setting free of the office, we we rejoice with him and his family. But what about the divine courtroom? How can a just, I should pay attention to these questions, how can a just right and holy God Declare that any human who, who by nature is not just, is not right, is not holy, is now right, just, and holy. Thomas Schreiner writes this is extraordinary because such a verdict violates the normal and just procedures for a judge. A judge doesn't just say to a guilty person, you're not guilty anymore. Do you see the dilemma of our justification? A just, right, and holy God, he looks at you and me who are not just, right, and holy, and he declares us to be everything that we are not. How can this God, this judge, who seemingly gets it so wrong, in this particular case, in our case, still be just, right, and holy? How can he maintain those characteristics and those titles? God declares us to be righteous. He declares us to be just. He declares us to be holy. Not because of our efforts, not because of our ability to keep the law not because we're decent fellows, not because we try real hard, not because we main a certain dietary restriction or not because we're diligently reading our Bibles every day, not because we're faithful to participate in church. No, we are declared to be just. We are declared to be righteous because of Jesus Christ. Eventually, Luther came to realize that the righteousness of God was not what God expected us to do. (laughs) He came to understand it was that which God provided for us. In response to this realization, Luther wrote this. He says, I felt myself reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. That's the joy of understanding justification. It's not the righteousness that has to come from me, but it's the righteousness that has been given to me in the life, the death, the resurrection, the intercessory work of Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5.21 Paul writes this, he says, For our sake he, that is God, made him Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. You may not see the word justification in 2 Corinthians 5.21, but the work of justification is all over this particular verse. God takes our sin and he imputes it. He charges it to Christ. This is what the cup is all about in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus says, if it's possible, let this cup of your wrath pass from me. Our sins are being imputed to Christ This is what that that cry on the cross is all about when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's forsaken because my sins and your sins are being imputed to Christ. They're being placed on him. And then he takes the righteousness of Christ and he imputes it. He charges it to your life and to mine. To put it another way, God treated Christ as we deserve to be treated so that he might treat us as Christ deserved to be treated. Jesus Christ is the only human to live a life of justice, righteousness, and holiness. And he graciously shares that that righteous life, that just life, that holy life with us. And this is how, this is the means by which God, the divine judge, can declare you and I, sinful as we are, to be just and to be right and to be holy. I like the way Bridges words this when he says this. God does not resort to some kind of legal fiction, calling something righteous that is not That wouldn't be within his character, would it? Rather, he declares us righteous on the basis of the real and accomplished righteousness of Jesus the Christ, imputed to us because of our union with him on the cross and in his resurrection. So what then is our contribution to this justification? Sin. Sin from which we need to be justified. Sin that was imputed to Christ. But how is that received? How is this justification received? What do we see in the text? How can we be justified? Notice with me again in verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but... Through faith. Through faith in Jesus Christ. Notice how often this word is used, faith. Through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed, same word, in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by what? Faith in Christ. Another great parallel text you could look at this afternoon or today is Romans 3. They'll help you see this fleshed out even more. We are justified by faith. That is belief. That is trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. His death on the cross that offers us forgiveness. His resurrection from the dead that offers us new life. Yahweh spoke these words the first time to Habakkuk. Hundreds of years before Jesus when he said to Habakkuk "The just live by their faith. This was one of those non-coincidental moments of this shutdown and some of the teaching we looked at that we ended up in Habakkuk. Looking at this particular statement. Do you remember the context of this? Habakkuk was frustrated that God wasn't bringing the judgment he was supposed to bring on Israel. And so he said, Yahweh, where's it at? And Yahweh said, it's coming. I'm raising up the Chaldeans. And Habakkuk didn't like that very much. (laughs) How can you use these wicked, wicked people who are more wicked than we are to judge us for our wickedness? And God speaks to Habakkuk and says, don't worry, they're going to be judged as well they're going to fall they live according to their own standards of life they live in their pride and their arrogance and he said i don't want you to live like that i don't want israel to put their their trust in themselves like the chaldeans do because the just live by their faith their faith in in what their faith in who their faith not in themselves." but in their God. They put their trust in him. The just put their trust in the work of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. Again, let me say this. Faith means to trust, to believe, to embrace this truth. And according to scripture, even faith is is God's gift to us. But I want I want to be clear on on what we are trusting in. We use the word gospel a lot, and it's a great word. It's a great word that we find in Scripture that 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 is a word that, that encapsulates the story of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. And we may be tempted to say that we put our faith in the gospel. Listen, this bridges offers a bit of instruction. Here. He says the object of our faith is not the mere content of the message, but the one whom the message is about. See the difference? I could put my faith in the facts of the life of Jesus, or I can put my faith in Jesus. He is the gospel. He is the good news. So I want to let Bridges bring this home, put all these pieces together in this long quote. You do have it in your bulletin as well. He writes, as we come to Christ then empty-handed, claiming no merit of our own, but clinging by faith to his blood and righteousness, we are justified. We pass immediately from a state of condemnation and spiritual death to a state of pardon, acceptance, and the sure hope of eternal life. Our sins are blotted out and we're clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In our standing before God, we will never be more righteous, even in heaven, than we were the day that we trusted Christ. Or we are now. Obviously, in our daily experience, we fall far short of the perfect righteousness God requires. But because He has imputed to us the perfect righteousness of His Son, He now sees us as being just as righteous as Christ Himself. Again, that is the joy of justification. Paul's point to Peter in these verses is, his works will not justify you. Being a Jew and living like a Jew will not save you. Author Tim Keller writes this, he says, if we're justified by faith in what Christ has done, we are also not justified by what we do. Law observance is not what saves us. By by embracing Christ, let me put this another way, by embracing Christ, we are renouncing our own ability and we're relying completely on Him. To think that we can add anything to our salvation is not only a gross error, but it dishonors the very work that Christ came to do. It says, your cross is not enough. Your resurrected life is not enough. Friends, this is why you cannot lose your salvation. Because it's not about you. I often tell people, what did you do to earn your salvation? Well, well nothing. Then what can you do to disearn your salvation? It's a gracious gift of God. As Paul wrote to the Romans, he said this, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Do you remember his answer? It is God who justifies. It's why it's important that we remember in our day-to-day lives that, that reading your Bible, attending church, it doesn't impress God. I think sometimes we have the tendency to think God's really, really impressed with me today. I sang really good. I helped a lot of people. The only thing that impresses him is the finished work of Christ. It's why it's Christ and Christ alone. It's why the story is about him and not us. I love that illustration that Francis Chan gives. I think it's in the end of his book, Crazy Love, where he says, imagine, imagine you're, you're cast as an extra in a movie, and, and so you, you show up on set, and there's about 50 of you there, and you're kind of meandering in the background, and the main actors are out there, and they're, they're doing their dialogue and lines, and you're one of the guys who walks by, you know, with a cup of coffee and, and moves on, and, and then imagine, you know, a year later the movie comes out and, and you invite all of your friends over. God, you got to see this. I'm in this movie. And you get to that point and you got about a, a half second on the screen. And you're like, do you, do you see me? And Chan's point is, is that's, that's what we so often do in this life. We think the movie's about us. Because we get a half second. The movie's not about us. The story is not about us. It's about Christ. He's impressed with the work of Jesus. So you can relax on the self condemnation, you can relax on the judgmentalism towards other people. Like Bridges says, we all fall short, we're all going to fail. We can chill out, we can relax a little bit. I'm not saying that Bible reading is not important. You know me well enough to know that. I'm not saying that church is not important. Good works are not important. They are the the natural, spiritual outworking of a person who is deeply in love with Christ and filled with the Spirit of God. But they in no way affect your standing they in no way affect his love for you. We have to avoid thinking that because I forgot to read my Bible and pray this morning, that's why I got in this car accident today. We're tempted to think that way, aren't we? That, that's, that's karma. That's not Christ. Christ. Our standing in Him doesn't change. We have to avoid thinking that because I did read my Bible today, because I I did pray today, I even even memorized a verse today, that God somehow owes me something. That He's going to now, like Santa Claus, bring me some gift that will be a blessing to me. Bottom line is justification means that we do not dare depend on our own performance. But rather, we put our faith in the perfect performance of Jesus. One of my favorite old hymns says these words The best obedience of my hands dares not appear before thy throne, but faith can answer thy demands by pleading what my Lord has done. No more, my God. I boast no more. Would you bow with me this morning? If you'd listen to me for just a moment, I want to give you some time to pray, but here's some questions I want you to consider right now. Do Do I have a right relationship with God that is based on the imputed righteousness of Jesus? Am I trusting in Jesus Christ alone for my salvation? Or am I to some degree relying on my own performance, my own measure of morality, my own religious duties? And if you're here today and you say I know that I'm justified through faith in Christ do you enjoy the reality? Do you live out of that? Do you live out of your union with Jesus and your daily experiences or do you often get diverted and look to your own performance to find acceptance with God? Some of you Every day, live in shame that you shouldn't live in. You're justified. The Father does not view you in that way. Let those things go. Understand what Christ has done. I'll give you a moment to pray. Father, I have thanked you many times for that time at Southland Youth Camp when I came to understand justification by faith. And the fear that had plagued me for so long was replaced with joy and peace and hope. And through the years, God, you have continued to deepen my understanding everything Christ accomplished for me. You've been so patient and long-suffering with me as I've wrestled with being a Pharisee, putting on a show, been patient and long-suffering as I've lived with guilt and shame. I, I sinfully clung to it. Instead of looking to Christ, instead of focusing my attention on the imputed righteousness that was given to me, And the sin that Jesus so so graciously and humbly took upon Himself. So God, I pray for my friends today. I know the tendency that we all have to just want to work for it. To just think we're good enough. And I pray that if there's anyone here today who is who is hoping in their own performance that they would abandon that futile task and they would turn their eyes to Jesus. If there's any of my friends here today, God, who, who are living under, under that shame or they're living to perform, they're living out of pride either way, Because, God, we're we're making it about us. When it's all about him, it's all about the Savior. I pray that you would bring us to repentance and that we would leave here with that weight lifted off because our eyes aren't in the mirror looking at ourselves. They're, They're looking to Jesus, the author, the finisher of our faith. God, help us today to be honest. And you're not done with us. There's so many more texts coming in this book. But God, I pray that 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 breakthrough would begin today, that we would understand that in Jesus, we are free. Free to move forward in the life that you've called us to. Thank you, God for being so gracious with us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.